so I kind of use my art as like a personal expression of freedom and of autonomy. I like to kind of touch on femininity, female empowerment in my pieces. So I like to kind of depict women in like powerful scenes or just challenging the way that we view women's bodies. So like instead of like sexualizing any form of nudity, it's, I want people to like recognize and celebrate a woman's agency to express herself, wear or not wear whatever she feels. And, and I try to depict images that are kind of leaning towards like more powerful female representations in my photos or in my collages. Hello, hello. This is season one, episode six of Migrations. I can't believe we are already on episode six. This has been so exciting for me. I've already learned so much about making podcasts, and there's so much more to learn. I'm so grateful for my loyal listeners. So thank you for your awesome ratings and reviews. Please, if you like what you hear, rate me. These ratings really help the podcast be discovered by others. I started this podcast to highlight Asian voices and explore what Asian means to so many people. I would love for more people to listen to these episodes and think about this as well. Also, I really want to give a shout out to all of you podcast editors out there. It takes a lot of time to edit. Just going through this episode took me about five hours just to prepare so I could send it to my editor after I already recorded it. Then my editor, Quincy, goes through it as well, cleans up all my lip smacks and excessive breathing that nobody wants to hear, right? I am so grateful to my Patreon patrons for their support so that I can pay for this. But I'll be honest, it doesn't even cover half of the value to get this edited. My creative team deserves every penny. They are amazing and talented humans. So if you can, please head over to my Patreon page to support Migrations. You can contribute monthly or even one time. Check out www.patreon.com migrations to see the goodies you can receive. If you contribute $20 a month, you get a book picked by yours truly and a shout out at the end of each episode. If you can't do that much, that's fine. You'll get shout outs in other ways. And you can get a sneak peek into some of the episodes before they're even officially released. I think that's pretty cool, don't you? Thank you so much, and let's get into today's episode with Marzi Safarian. Hello, everyone. Today I'm talking to Marzi Safarian. Marzi was born and raised in Michigan and now lives in San Diego. She's a collage artist and also works as a speech-language pathologist. She identifies as Iranian-American and uses she, her, hers pronouns. Marzi infuses art and pop culture from the 60s into beautiful collage work. You can find her at work on Instagram at Psych Persia and Vintage Persia. I actually know Marzi because we went to graduate school for speech-language pathology together. I'm no longer in the profession, but thanks to social media, I've been able to stay connected with Marzi. Not only did I start admiring her art from afar, but I also noticed how her art was feminist and represented her Persian roots. I really wanted to find out more about her inspiration, so I asked her if we could chat more about it. Besides discovering more about her art, it was truly amazing to catch up with an old classmate. All right, let's dive in. So you do work as a speech-language pathologist, but you got into collaging. How did you get into that? And can you talk a little bit also about what collaging is for people that might not be familiar with it? 
Right. Um, so collaging is basically just kind of cutting and pasting different pieces together to create like a new piece on its own. So I do some of it with paper, um, kind of analog cutting and pasting my collages together, but most of it is done on the computer. So through things like Photoshop and stuff. But as far as how I got into it, I was always really into art growing up, kind of like a little I'd see a little girl where that was kind of like what I always wanted to do, always kind of drawing and, and painting. So for every birthday, I was always getting like paint as gifts. And basically growing up, I tried all different kinds of art, just kind of dabbling in different things. And throughout school, I feel like, I don't know, I was I was a good student, but my kind of big motivator was like, making collages out of my binders and you know you'd get the ones that had the clear inserts and you could put things in them and I would kind of cut and paste and glue things together and kind of make my binders this like piece of self-expression that I could take with me every day (laughs) so um, that was always really fun Um, but how I really got into like collaging hard in the last few years was um, well I started this Instagram page called Vintage Persia and I started it kind of as or a place that I could gather all of these photos that I had on my phone. I had all these old photos of Iran before the revolution, just because it always kind of fascinated me, the juxtaposition of like the Iranian culture and what we see in the media now versus how it kind of was before the revolution, where it was kind of super, I guess, really westernized, but um, just the kind of duplicity of these two different things. I I was very fascinated by that. So um, I loved a lot of the pop culture and stuff of Iran back in the 60s and 70s. So I would, you know, collect all these photos on my phone and then make them my wallpaper, but I had no place to put them and they were taking up a lot of space. So I started this Instagram page where I could kind of showcase them. People could send in then their family photos that kind of started this really cool community. And basically at one point I wanted to make a logo for Vintage Persia. So I had my husband show me how to use Photoshop so I could start making like a little collage and a little logo. And um, as soon as I learned the basics, I kind of just went down this rabbit hole, went really crazy with it. And, you know, I couldn't be torn away from (laughs) the computer for many days because I was busy collaging. And then from there, it's just kind of grown and I really enjoy doing it now. You know, it's kind of like a nice way for me to relax and it's, I don't know, I enjoy it a lot. So So I know you were talking about the revolution. Was your father there when that happened or? Yeah, so actually he moved from Tehran in Iran to Michigan just before the revolution. So he moved in, I believe, 1978, late 1978. Um, He was in his early 20s and he really wanted to stay in Iran, but he ended up coming here for school, you know, due to his parents' encouragement and yeah, he got an education here, met my mom, who's American, and he met her in Michigan. And yeah, they moved to Chicago and had my brother and I. And But, you know, even though I grew up in the U.S., it was really nice because he kept our Persian culture kind of ever present in the home, which was really um, nice to have. So through, like, you know, the language, the food, the music, and kind of maintaining those close relationships with our family overseas, we were able to kind of grow up in a in a really Persian household like that. I think what Marzi talked about here in terms of pre- and post-revolution Iran is really important. Pre-revolution Iran isn't a time period that we've seen depicted that much in the mainstream media. Just a couple of months ago, we heard about a potential nuclear war with Iran, and we also hear about their strict Islamic culture. So I asked Marzi about how she sees Iran depicted in the media now, and what this has to do with her identity and art. Yeah, so... 
basically, like, you know, when we look at the media and their portrayal of Iran, I kind of consider it to be stale, bleak. It portrays Iran as a nation of these Islamic fundamentalists that are, like, out to destroy the United States. You know what I mean? And so, like, a lot of these news stories and a lot of these representations that we see in the media are pretty negative. And a lot of times they're accompanied by these photos of, like, women in burqas and, and mullahs and people chanting death to America. But this really isn't the real Iran. So, like, for me, I was fortunate enough to grow up in a household that was really entrenched in Persian culture and I spent a summer in Iran visiting my relatives during like my formative years. So I'm really glad I went when I did. And through like creating art for me, it's informed by my experiences as an Iranian American woman. And so when I make this art, I'm kind of hoping also to highlight the many beautiful aspects of my culture and to enhance kind of a richer understanding for people or just a new perspective of what our culture represents. Um, so through like, you know, like you said, my vintage Persia page and my psych Persia art page, I just really love kind of depicting Iranian celebrities, different, you know, anonymous Persians too, like from old photographs or various places in Iran. I like to kind of put those in my collages in order to spark some curiosity in those that may not have really thought of Iran in that way. And like a lot of times too, I like to take photos of American celebrities like Debbie Harry or Cher and kind of skew the images a little bit, which I call like Persianizing them. So I'll, you know, take one of these American celebrities and kind of give them these thick eyebrows joined in the center or big round eyes or change some part of the scenery around them or add in like some Persian motifs or clothing, something like that to kind of meld these two cultures together and warp an image of like a familiar all-American celebrity kind of in order to otherize them a little bit, you know? So I feel like I'm trying to kind of play with the idea that an American and Iranian really aren't that different once you kind of like, you know, play with the layers or peel back the layers a little bit, so... Wow, that is so cool. I've noticed you did that, but I never thought about it in that way. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that's something that probably subconsciously affected me, but I didn't consciously realize. I mean, it's almost like a reverse assimilation, right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. And I think that's really fun to play with. Like you're saying, like otherizing it, but kind of like the other way, you know? For sure. Yeah, that's a good way yeah. of thinking of it. Yeah. Yeah, that's really, really neat. Um so I also noticed that you use some different symbols. Like you talked about the, the eyebrows um, mm-hmm. and you put eyes a lot. Can you talk about where, where that comes from? Yeah. So um, like as far as the symbols that I use, I was thinking about it. Like I know the last time we were speaking, we were kind of talking about like the evil eye. Um, like in Persian culture, the, the evil eye or the nazar is present in a lot of different like motifs or just you know jewelry things like that and it's a symbol that kind of represents keeping away bad spirits or bad energy so I don't know like the reason I include them is maybe because on some deep level I'm trying to place them in my pieces to keep away (laughs) the bad energy but you know also I just find eyes to be really fascinating but like as far as other symbolism in my art I think that like A lot of my art is kind of inspired by, at least visually, by art and pop culture of the 60s and 70s and textiles and different architectural influences like mosaics. And like for me, I'm a big fan of Persian nomadic art with its like bright, rich, saturated colors and like there's a lot of geometric patterns. And so I really love that. 
And a lot of my collages are kind of like this composite of both Iranian and American influences. So a lot of times I do, you know, incorporate symbols of like rock and roll and disco. And then, you know, I try to incorporate things that like my father exposed me to, which were like Persian icons like Gugush and Dariush, these um, famous musicians from the 70s that we really kind of grew up idolizing in my house. So I love to incorporate those elements. But then like on a deeper level, I would say that a lot of my art kind of draws on the relationship between my Eastern ancestry and my Western upbringing. And that can be very isolating, you know, to kind of be between these two cultures, the duplicity of like these two worlds and where you kind of feel like, or at least for me, I kind of feel like I never truly belong to either one. And like touching on that, I mean, I grew up in the Midwest um, in a small town. I mean, I'm from Chicago, but then I kind of grew up in the small town in Michigan without really any, or at least not many, Middle Eastern kids around me. And obviously without those positive representations in the media, like we were just saying. So you kind of feel like you're ostracized a lot by your peers and your adults. And then, you know, kind of being othered in a sense. Like, for example, I was thinking about this story as I was thinking about this earlier today. I think it was in like the third or fourth grade. And me and like my best girlfriend at the time, um, she's this American girl. We're sitting playing a board game together, like during, it must have been like free play or something in the classroom. So it had like all these trivia questions on it. And so she pulled this card that referenced the Iranian hostage crisis. I don't remember the question exactly, but it was for like, I don't know, fourth grade or something. And she realized that like I'm Iranian and that Iranians took Americans hostage back in the seventies. And then for like three months, she didn't speak to me. So it's kind of like this weird kind of feeling of like, no matter how American you become or how much you assimilate, even as like this little kid, you know, you're never really kind of, or you're kind of grappling with this duality of being perceived as different by American peers, you know, or, you know, the society overall. So I just thought that was kind of it's something like little spurts throughout my life. It's like you're always kind of dealing with things like that, no matter how ridiculous or silly it sounds, you know? Yeah, but- I don't think that sounds silly at all. Like, actually, that's I got chills. Like, that's really <laughs> powerful. And, you know, I remember stories like that. I mean, like feeling like that, too, when I was younger, like, I have to assimilate enough to have those friends. Mm-hmm. But I also have to represent my culture to be able to speak to it and still have like patriotism or something and it's like just living these multiple identities just to belong right exactly and it's like I think the example seems silly in my head because I'm like what little kid would do but it's you know it's just one of these things is like an adult you deal with it in different ways or it comes out I think of people in different ways but yeah yeah it's 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 hard this is yeah assimilating just enough is kind of a good way of putting it so another layer that I think complicates it and I'm sure you can attest to is just being born female. So like, you know, we know female oppression is obviously universal. It's not like something I would consider to be like a Persian thing or a trait of like Iranian men or anything like that. But I think like in many ways, the restrictions placed on women in Iran, like the mandatory hijab or rusari, the just, you know, general lack of like women's rights and autonomy in their society. Those also lend to my art in the sense that I like to express freedom and women in these strong, empowering roles. So, and I think a lot of that also comes from the way I grew up. 
I lived in a household where like my mother and I kind of had to give up our voices a little bit in order to maintain order in the home because my father was always like a little bit controlling. And so in a weird way, I think that's why I generally choose like back to the symbols. I think I choose a lot of loud colors and like bright kind of like in your face patterns or just images as kind of a rebellion against living quietly. Because I feel like a lot of my life has consisted of me feeling like, you know, maintaining an invisible nature might be to my benefit, both like within my home, but also just as kind of a Middle Eastern female in the world, you know, once you speak up too much or just become too noticed, you're putting yourself out there. And a lot of times you can put yourself out there in, in an incredibly vulnerable position. So I kind of use my art as like a personal expression of freedom and of autonomy. I like to kind of touch on femininity, female empowerment in my pieces. So I like to kind of depict women in like powerful scenes or just challenging the way that we view women's bodies. So like instead of like sexualizing any form of nudity, I want people to like recognize and celebrate a woman's agency to express herself, wear or not wear whatever she feels. And I try to depict images that are kind of leaning towards like more powerful female representations in my photos or in my collages. So I feel like I find a lot of personal freedom in that. And I think a lot of my life just in family dynamics and romantic relationships, I've kind of spent a lot of time being told exactly what not to wear, how not to behave, and kind of being silenced like that. So I feel like really empowered in my femininity and I enjoy using, you know, these female forward images and like loud colors as kind of a rebellion against what is expected of me as a woman of color. So I kind of find like art to be my safe space for me to kind of deal with all of these things. <laughs> there are a lot of pieces Marzi has created that I absolutely love. While scrolling through Psych Persia's Instagram page, one piece really stuck out, and I'll link to it in the show notes. In the background, there are these ethereal-looking pink flowers against a night sky. And in the foreground is a picture of an Iranian woman wearing a green rusery, which covers her head, nose, and mouth. But Marzi collaged in a retro-looking scarf over her nose and mouth with the word love written in pink bubble letters, like something you'd see on the side of a VW bus in the 60s. And there were orange and yellow and brown flowers in the background. It's as if you're looking at pre- and post-revolution Iran in one view. On one hand, you can see the effects of the installed Ayatollah, but you can also see a hint of how things were just before this, against a beautifully dark background. This made me think about how the U.S., with its Western ideals, essentially stripped the sense of Western culture from Iran. I asked Marzi what she thought about this. Yeah, and I feel like, and and to be honest, the West had a big role in installing the king in Iran, too. So it was like, you know, they kind of pulled Iran towards a more Western, more like... I guess, liberal, you know, way of living. But then also the Shah was so bad for people's democracy, too. Like they're kind of looking for this middle ground, this democracy that they're not getting. I mean, the U.S. was kind of managing the country for so many years or mismanaging it. I mean, there there was all these events that led up to the revolution that were so complicated and longstanding. But now, yeah, now we've got Iran and this Islamic Republic state, and now there's a whole other list of problems. So yeah, now it's like the lack of rights for women is obviously very heartbreaking. And women, I think in Persian culture, at least in my experiences, have always been very powerful and kind of very loud and very 
you know, they're very independent. And so I see this, you know, in lots of Persian folklore and, and Persian stories that were told to me as a kid. And I see it in my aunts, like my Iranian aunts are so headstrong and so glamorous and they definitely live their lives out loud. So even though, you know, women are experiencing a lot of oppression in Iran, obviously it's something that women experience around the world and around the globe. And it's something that I think is obviously a big issue internationally just and in the U.S. Speaking to Persian culture, I don't think that the culture itself has always been this way. As far as, you know, I don't think that men are especially oppressive in Iran, but I do think that overall as women in any culture, we have to go through a lot of the same things. Like me as an American woman, an Iranian American woman, I deal with a lot of the same things as, you know, women do in Iran, but there it might be more blatantly obvious when they go in public, they have to cover. Here it's kind of like more nuanced or, you know, it's, but it's still very heavy and it's, you know, still very hard. So I feel like just, I don't know, I feel kind of a solidarity with women and, and I feel very empowered when I at least get to express myself through creating something, you know? Yeah, definitely. And I really like how you talk about how women don't have to be oppressed to the degree of being forced to wear certain clothes mm-hmm. to experience a type of marginalization. I mean, in the West, you know, in Los Angeles, you know, I experience sexism. It's alive and well. It looks different ways. And sure, certain cultural ways and politics as well can affect the level of rights somebody has, which is not to be ignored. I mean, I have the right to vote and I can go to work, generally wear what I want to wear. But that doesn't mean that this ideology in terms of just sexism and microaggressions towards women um, are gone forever. Exactly. Exactly. I think we're all (laughs) feeling that. So, yeah. Yeah. And it just kind of, it looks different depending on the culture you came from, you know, and also the family you came from. You know, I have some friends where there is a lot more overt sexism in their family. And then I have others where I grew up definitely with the matriarch, yet there's a lot of things within my family that are still sexist that my mom still adheres to. Even though my mom was the matriarch, my father passed away seven years ago and she still kind of felt a little bit like, okay, even, you know, as much as she missed my father and, you know, was grieving him, she still was kind of like, I kind of feel like I can do whatever I want, you know? And it wasn't even like my dad wasn't demanding of her, especially for like the stereotype of an an South Asian man, like at all. But it's still just like a certain sense of answering to somebody or just being a woman in a hetero relationship and having certain demands. So it was more of a structural thing than I think actually my father. But yeah, he was just bringing that up, reminded me of a lot of things that really affect a woman's experience. Mm -hmm. No, I mean, that's so true. I like how you're explaining that, how it just like, it looks different in different cultures or in different households. But yeah, it's like, even if it's nuanced or just less overt, you feel it, you know, you feel any of these moments of, like you said, microaggressions where it feels very in your face, no matter even, you know, even though we can walk around technically wearing what we want. Yeah, it's like, it's a whole thing. (laughs) Yeah, definitely. And I also remember you telling me that in some really old Persian stories, there was very strong representation of women. Yeah. When I was really young, my dad used to like read stories to me before bed or just tell us. We had all these Persian books, like folklore. And so I know like, you know, one of the really famous old Persian, it's it's like a long epic poem. It's called the Shahnameh. 
and it had a lot of female heroines and like it's part mythological but it's part you know based on historical facts so there were a few Persian leaders in Iran's history or in Persia's history that were female and so I always thought that was pretty fascinating and then a lot of the women I remember you know reading about or hearing about in these stories were kind of these like powerful warriors I'm thinking of one specifically I'm, I'm blanking on her name but she had all these suitors and she would kill them or send them off whatever until the right one came along but I remember just being like, wow, like women are really depicted as powerful beings. And a lot of these stories are kind of female forward. And, you know, versus a lot of the stories you read as, you know, in American culture, all these princess stories, which are beautiful and lovely. And I like them, but they're, you know, I think they depict women as a little bit more like helpless. Whereas I noticed the difference between the stories I would hear when I was little about the Persian stories about these Persian women. And they always seemed a little bit strong and kind of a force to be reckoned with. So I think I always really enjoyed hearing about those. Besides the connection between Marzi's art to her culture and female strength, I also wanted to talk to her about our connection between our speech-language pathology background and about our fluency, or lack thereof, in our native language. For reference, my native language is Gujarati and Marzi's is Farsi. For me, personally, my parents were told by the speech therapist at my elementary school not to teach me my native language because it would confuse me where now the literature says the complete opposite. And losing my native language was, or not losing it, but never having it fully has been really challenging for me. And it, it kind of talking about what you were saying before about not knowing where you belong. I mean, there is that part of it too. It, it almost kind of worsens that feeling. It makes it just feel a little more bitter. Can you talk about your experience with that? Yeah, I relate a lot to what you just said. I mean, I feel, well, I guess I'll quickly rewind. When I was growing up, my dad only spoke Farsi to me. And then my mom, who's American, only spoke English. So my dad did really want to instill Farsi in me and my Persian roots and my culture. So he did it through language and many other things. But you know, as I grew up, I wasn't really growing up around in Middle Eastern kids or Persian kids. So you kind of lose your Farsi. And there's times when I was a child where I would become embarrassed if my dad was picking me up from school and speaking Farsi to me. And, you know, it's like you just kind of want to assimilate. There were times when I felt like, you know, I would answer back in English because I didn't really want to draw attention to myself. But then as I got older, I got really um, proud of having my language. And so over time, though, naturally, you just kind of lose a lot of it. So... I mean, at this point, it's kind of too late and not fluent anymore. I could relearn, um, but I can at least communicate a little bit. But in general, I do feel a deep loss about losing my fluency in Farsi. And I think like from our perspective as having this speech language background, I mean, we know that humans use language as a way to connect with one another, to build interpersonal relationships, communicate, express so many things. And I just feel like I don't have the ability to do that anymore in Farsi because my language is so limited. And so it's hard to connect with a lot of Iranian Americans. And I think that like, 
you know, having any other means to connect with people is really nice. Even if it's outside the language, if I can't do so with Farsi, then I'll do so other ways. But I don't know about you, but I feel like too, adding to the kind of feeling of being othered when I got older and I kind of went to college and would try and connect with other like Persian students or Persian American students, I felt like it almost became a competition of who knows more Farsi and like, you know, how Persian you are or how American you are if you kept your Farsi. Yeah. I mean, have you ever experienced that? Because I feel like that's always been kind of a painful thing, too. You know, I don't think I experienced it amongst my peers. I never felt that way or pressure from anyone, though I felt shame that I wasn't fluent. And I think I felt more shame within my family, like amongst my cousins, even though we didn't see each other a lot, but like a lot of my cousins are more fluent than I am. And I was kind of just like jealous, you know, and and again, none of them ever made me feel bad, but it was just like a jealousy because I just wished I had that. And you're right. Mm -hmm. Like it's just harder to do when you're older and yeah, it's a way to connect with others. Um, But that's really interesting seeing that as like a competition and and being a measure of your, Yeah, it was something I experienced in undergrad. And then I thought that, you know, we would grow out of it when I went away to graduate school. But I don't know, it still felt and maybe it was in my head when I was older, maybe it was just kind of like lingering there. But I still kind of felt like if a grad student was speaking to me in Farsi and I was answering in like what I would call Fargalisi or like Farsi English, I felt like a little bit like, ooh, I can see on their face that they're disappointed or something. But that again, that might just be the kind of inner shame. I have no idea. Yeah. And I also think for me, um, there's so many Indian languages. So when I was like in college, there were a lot of South Asian kids there, but a lot of us just spoke different languages. So I think that immediate competition just wasn't there because it's not like we all spoke the same language. So that might've been it too. Yeah. You know, it was interesting when you were talking about the interpersonal relationships, I was just thinking about how my uncle just passed away. It was my dad's oldest brother and he's the last in my, thank you. He's the last in my dad's lineage, like of his his siblings um, to be alive. And he was actually the oldest. I've been trying to connect with some family in India. A lot of them aren't that fluent in English. And Mm -hmm. I want to call them to express my condolences, but I just feel so embarrassed that I don't know what to say. And, you know, I've told my mom and she's like, you know, they'll understand. Just say basic things. They'll just be happy you called. And I know that intellectually, but emotionally, I still feel all this shame that, you know, I, I don't know the language. If anything, when I go to India and I try to speak in Gujarati, you know, I don't think anyone's trying to make me feel bad, but they'll just like laugh at my American slash Gujarati accent or my really bad grammar skills. So then it just makes me not want to even try. Though the nice thing about being exposed to it at that level is that I hear it a lot. So at least my comprehension is there. Yeah. More than it is here because, you know, and you know, now that I don't live with any family that speaks Gujarati, like I just don't hear it as much. So it is really nice to hear it a lot because at least that helps. Absolutely. Yeah. No, I can definitely relate with that kind of feeling of loss and shame about it, but I think you should call them. I think they'd be super happy to hear from you. <laughs> no, I will. I will. But yeah, it, it it is interesting how it can affect our behavior, I guess, in that way. And I have recently actually found some lessons for Gujarati. So I'm actually considering oh, wow. taking that eventually. And, you know, they teach adults. So I think that would be really cool. Um, just something that I can do to connect to my ancestors a little bit so that when I go back there, I mean, now a lot of my cousins that are older, you know, English 
English is taught more within the schools. Um, Like I have zero problem talking to my cousins that are around my age um, Mm -hmm. because they are completely fluent in English. But at the same time, I do think there's, there's just like fun things to other languages. When you hear it from your parents, you have these memories and it's a way to connect, not just to other people, but to like nostalgia in a way too, right? Exactly. Yes, exactly. And that's a beautiful thing. I mean, connecting to that feeling of nostalgia and, you know, I think like you said, with you losing your father, which I'm so sorry about, that's heartbreaking, but you know, it's like the nostalgia that you want, that feeling of home, that feeling of warmth that might remind you of your parents or just, I don't know, your ancestors, like you said, and Either way, even if a lot of the cousins that are your age can connect with you in English right now, I can really, I understand the desire to kind of still hold on to that or want to learn that language that is so kind of entrenched in your culture. So I found recently some Farsi classes too in the area for adults. I feel like a lot of them are geared towards children, which I feel like adds another layer of shame where I'm like, oh, (laughs) I'm not even a child anymore. (laughs) I can't even take these classes. But like you, I found a class recently for Farsi for adults. So I'm thinking of maybe doing the same thing. So that's exciting. Yeah, it's good to know that, you know, with more representation in the States and people with these common issues or losses, that there are others trying to make this accessible for us. So that's really, really exciting. Absolutely. Yeah. So as Marzi and I were talking, I realized that there was a larger connection to what we talked about in terms of art and language, and it's tied to connecting it with culture. How else have you maybe connected to other Persians through your art? Oh, uh, yes. You know, like I was saying, I had very few Persian friends growing up in the Midwest. But the ones I did have kind of went the traditional path of like math and science um, and following the road that was expected of them by their parents. And I didn't really know any Persians that were following any sort of creative path. So by putting myself out there in my art, I feel like I'm making myself visible as a Persian creative, which I, as you know, a teenager and in my 20s, never really had exposure to. And I didn't really know existed, which sounds kind of funny because art exists in every culture. <laughs> but um, through the process of making all this art and kind of sharing it via social media, I've been able to connect with others who followed that same path. So I'm really inspired by them. And I really enjoy kind of connecting with individuals who, like me, maybe followed another path traditionally in their work, like with me in speech pathology, but who really have a deep connection with their culture and just with their own artistic expression that's possible within that world. So I really enjoyed connecting with others through it. Cool. Have you been able to connect to anyone in um, Iran through your art? Actually, yes. Maybe two years ago, I was kind of communicating with someone. I get, you know, I get people messaging me a lot on Instagram. And so I had some guy messaging me and we were having conversation and he was asking me, you know, how much he could pay me to mail my prints. And I haven't quite found a way to do that affordably overseas yet. So we ended the conversation, spoke again in a few days, and he told me that he figured out a way to print my collages and was asking if that's all right. And I said, of course. And he was living back in Iran. 
And so he was telling me that he was printing all of my collages and hanging them outside of his home, like kind of like on this terrace that faces the street so that everyone could see them, which I just thought was like really moving. I mean, for whatever reason, I just was like almost in tears. And it was so sweet just to see that like I could connect with someone so far away who, you know, he's part of my culture, but at the same time, you know, we're like oceans apart, but he's sharing my art and, you know, we're using it as kind of a means to connect and kind of relate on a personal level. And I thought that was really beautiful. That is so beautiful. That just gave me the chills again. Yeah, it's really, really nice to know that your art is affecting someone. And kind of going back to those like interpersonal relationships, like maybe the fluency isn't completely there, but your art is being like displayed in Iran. I mean, that's so amazing. It's not about like the money, right? It's about like... Yeah, of course. Like I think that's the thing with art too. It's at least for me, it's like, oh, I don't really make anything off of it. It's, you know, I got to pay my bills with my day job. So for me, it's just so much about the connection and just about the kind of self-expression. But yeah, I just, oh, that was beautiful. (laughs) Yeah, that is so sweet. That's really heartwarming. Thank you so much for sharing that story. Of course. Yeah. Well, Marzi, thank you so much. I've had such a delightful time talking to you. And I'm so glad that you and I have been able to keep up with each other, even though I've left the profession and, um, you know, we both moved away from Chicago. I mean, I'm, I feel the same, though. I'm so happy that we've been able to keep in touch. It's so wonderful following what you do, too, and your creative expression and the podcast and your writings. It's all it's it's amazing to watch. So thank you so much, Marzi. Well, I am so glad that we are here to root each other on it. Is wonderful. <laughs> yes, I agree. Thank you so much, Nisha. My conversation with Marzi reminded me of a couple of things. First, it showed me how politics is intricately connected to feminism and migration. We might look at the United States' imperialistic actions in Iran, Iraq, or several other places in this world as a fight for resources and or political power. But this has social ramifications. The expectations and social norms for all people living in Iran, including women, drastically changed after the revolution. Like Marzi said, the U.S. has been influential in installing dictators and leaders that promoted Western ideals and ones that didn't. And the lives of women in Iran were forever changed because of both actions. And while, as we discussed, there are still many ways that sexism manifests, even in the West, living with more liberal ideals, and then being told you can no longer dress a certain way, engage in certain activities, amongst other things, is oppressive. So much so that migration has been a result. While Marzi's dad happened to move to the United States before the revolution, there was a significant influx of Iranians to the West after the revolution ended in 1979. According to the U.S. Department of Homeland Security's Office of Immigration Statistics, the Federal Statistical Office of Germany, Sweden Statistics, Statistics Canada, and the U.K. Home Office, the number of Iranian immigrants admitted to the United States, Canada, Germany, the U.K., and Sweden from 1971 to 1980 was 46,152 whereas the number of immigrants admitted from 1981 to 1990 was 154,857, more than three times the previous decade. The second thing our conversation made me realize 
was that art is a way that we can connect with others. We chatted about our collective loss of language, and this truly is something to grieve for many children of immigrants. But it was so heartwarming to hear Marzi's story about her art being displayed around Tehran. Images can still convey so much, and their interpretation is in the eye of the beholder. What I saw in one of Marzi's collage art pieces can be interpreted completely differently by someone else. Language through words is one way we can connect with others, but art can generate events and feelings that cannot always be put into words. As always, I'd like to thank my creative talent that helped me on this episode. Thank you to Tiffany Wong for your help with the Migrations cover art. Thanks Shin Kawasaki for the Migrations song, Find Another Way. And thanks to Quincy Sirosmith for editing this episode. And of course, I want to give a shout out to my $20 a month and above Patreon patrons. So thank you to my brother Shalene and Dahlia Gahan for your generous support. Thank you to all my Patreon patrons for everything you do. And remember, you can support this podcast by going to www.patreon.com migrations. Thanks again, and until next time. Oh,